Good morning, Redeemer Church. It's a joy to be with you on this Lord's Day today, and wonderful to, to worship through song, through prayers, through Bible reading, and through the preached word. My name is Dave Firm, and I serve as one of the elders with Redeemer Church. If you're new, welcome. We're glad that you're here. I spent the last week in Lebanon and Turkey. I'm going to move over to the side here so you can see the screen. I have some pictures that I want to show you from uh, my trip. First, Pastor Scott and I went to Beirut, Lebanon to be with City Bible Church. Pastor Marwan uh, was an intern with us. He served as a church planting resident with us for a couple of years. And this month is their fifth anniversary as a church. And I had the privilege of preaching the very first Sunday in their new church building. You could see their building there. You could see me preaching and you could see what happened during the altar call. I had a very excited child come on up. Uh, no, I didn't do an altar call, but right when I was preaching the gospel um, part of the, the sermon and pointing to Jesus, this little child came up forward and made some kind of declaration with his water bottle. Uh, some of you will remember the blast that took place in Beirut a, a little over two years ago. Well, City Bible Church's old hall was the very, was the closest church building to the blast, and it was mostly destroyed. Well, in God's kindness, they found a new spot. They renovated it, and in some parts, built it from scratch. Just look at how beautiful. You can see the, the ceilings uh, there. There's some beautiful w windows on the, on the sides. Great natural light, great part of the city, wonderful location, uh, really an incredible uh, place. So, and after being alone for a while, without a building, but also without a team, uh, there's now a team that's formed uh, there, Pastor Anwar, uh, used to be an elder at the Evangelical Community Church in Abu Dhabi. Uh, he and there's a few other staff along with our former youth coordinator, Corsair, uh, that have joined him. Uh, pray for City Bible Church in this new season. Pray for Pastor Marwan and Marcy, their boys. You can see there's Shia and Noah. They're growing up so fast. Uh, both were so excited about the church, excited the, about the new building, excited about uh, the team, uh, and just, just so excited to, to see us and talk to us about Jesus. So pray for the whole uh, family. So after Lebanon, Pastor Scott and I left Lebanon, and we went to Turkey and joined in with Pastor Chris, Pastor Morgs, and Travis Whitehead here from Redeemer for the Acts 29 Europe church planting conference. You see a picture there of Chris and I in front of uh, some ancient ruins. I had my Furman t-shirt on down there. You could sort of see it in case anybody forgot my name. There were many European, many Turkish pastors uh, there, along with some from Africa and from uh, the Middle East. A few hours after our, our arrival, we stumbled across the Dubai Beach Lounge, complete with the Burj Al Arab logo. Uh, thousands of kilometers away, uh, Dubai uh, was still with us. Well, the main theme of the conference was all of Christ for all of life in all the world. And the main speakers walked through the book of Colossians uh, with us, which was just tremendously encouraging. At the same time, it was sobering because if you know anything about Turkey, there are 86 million people in Turkey and only about 5,000 evangelical Christians. Now, if you like math like, like I do, of course, you, you, you did the math, and that means uh, the population is 0. 0.00057%. 
evangelical Christians. So that's not less than 1%. That's less than 0.0001%. And so there's an uphill battle there. Perhaps the world's largest, least reached people group. Um, there I was re reunited with Pastor Karam, whom I met a decade ago. Uh, we visited their church gathering space. It's in a nondescript kind of tall building on the fifth floor of this office tower in the city center. And there's so much persecution that Pastor Karam has received many death threats and often needs a police escort. For a while, a, a policeman would actually go with him to all of his discipleship and evangelistic meetings. <laughs> he mentioned it was getting quite expensive because he had to pay for the policeman's food and coffee as well. But it reminded me of Philippians, right? You know, where Paul was chained to a police guard, or chained to a jailer, and he was sharing the gospel with jailer after jailer after jailer. And I just kind of pictured Pastor Karam there uh, sitting and talking to someone about Jesus where a policeman sat nearby hearing uh, the gospel uh, preached. The Lord has uh, ways beyond our understanding. Um, in the midst of the persecution, though, by God's grace, they've opened a beautiful training center. Here's a picture of their main training room where they bring cohorts of 12 current or future pastors in and just a great lounge area. You can see library. Uh, you can see a, a, some tables set up and a pulpit. They have rooms to bring in pastors who can spend the night. I think they have about 14 beds in this house, training space, a little cafeteria. Afterwards, we all gathered outside just to learn more about the ministry, to lay hands on Karim, his wife, and the team, and to pray for them. The conference was a huge, huge blessing for us. One byproduct of it was that we got to see uh, Pastor Scott at work. We got to see a little taste of uh, Pastor Scott's uh, future ministry with Acts 29 and the church planting network. Um, the work in Turkey, the work in Lebanon is part of Acts 29. And it was an encouragement just to see the opportunities. If you were here two weeks ago, you, you saw myself and Pastor Scott make the announcement of Pastor Scott's transition uh, to this new role and transition to the U.S. Well, it was encouraging just to see his leadership and to see uh, what's to come in the years to come in ways that we'll continue uh, to partner uh, together. So that was exciting. Also, though, I want to give just a brief update about our own church as we visited training centers and office space in Lebanon and new church building even as we visited Turkey and were able to see this new pastoral uh, training center. We realized that's been a big prayer uh, of ours here in Dubai as well for a training center space, for an office, for our staff team and for Gulf Theological Seminary, for a training space to train up uh, pastors. And so I wanted to follow up on some comments that I made a couple weeks ago. Uh, or a couple times in the last month about a space called Commerce City in Um Ramul. Uh, it was an option that our elders were looking at. It's, it's a great opportunity that would allow us to hold various meetings, uh, various gatherings and office space, and it could have worked out, uh, but we chose not to follow through on that at this time for a few reasons. One, our finance and operations team's recommendation to the elders shifted from a yes uh, to a we should wait uh, for this opportunity. A few reasons for this. While we were working on a draft uh, budget for this next fiscal year, there was consideration of having the necessary funds to compensate incoming staff and to take care of current staff, and that probably caused the, the biggest pause for us. 
Also, while our giving is steady, it hasn't really increased, and we want to be careful in light of that as to any long-term uh, commitments. Also, moving into this room uh, was quite costly, so the, the cost of renting this room is twice the amount of what we were paying back at the Marriott, for those of you who were around back then, and about 60% more than the cost of the Moven pick uh, in uh, Garhu, but it's the place that God has given to us on a regular basis in a strategic part of town, but, but we have to keep that in mind. And also, just the timing was quite fast. And we want to be sure to share with you, our members, as much as we can beforehand to get feedback from our members. Well, at the same time, we know that in Dubai, oftentimes when an opportunity comes our way, we have to move quite quickly on it. Uh, Everything just seemed to be happening so fast, and so it seemed wise to wait. And so while we're thankful for what God has provided in Lebanon, while we're thankful for what God has provided in Turkey, uh, we're going to, we'll wait and continue to pray for the right space for Redeemer Church of Dubai. And so friends, pray for wisdom uh, for the elders as we continue uh, to look and to pray. And members, if you have any ideas as well, uh, please do uh, let us know. And let's continue to give generously to the work here, as, as Prem mentioned, uh, so that we can continue uh, to give to ministries like those in Lebanon and Turkey, as well as look for ways to advance the gospel through Redeemer Church and through church planting. Uh, in this place. So church, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take next Sunday, you heard uh, Chris Moore mention uh, our first Sunday prayer. Next week, we're going to take next Sunday to spend focused time praying for Lebanon, for Turkey, for Acts 29, along with our own church planting aspirations at 9 a.m. in this room. This is an important uh, meeting. If we as a church want to be known for anything, I would hope and pray that we would be known as a church that is dependent upon God for everything, that that, that we are a prayerful church. As one of the speakers at the Turkey conference said, let's make prayer the engine of our church, because in fact, it is. It is God's sovereign means of moving through his people in this world. He has ordained prayer to be the engine of the church. So let's keep praying. Let's keep asking God to move. And so each month we stop. We stop tweens classes. We stop our equipping classes and we come in this room and we pray. So join us next Sunday. Well, now as we turn our attention to the word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, There's much on our minds this morning. We have earthly concerns, pains, anxiety, stress, conflict. Some of us are tired. Father, we praise you for Rohan and Veronica's wedding yesterday and last night. We thank you for them. We praise you for them. Bless their marriage. Be with them. We know many of us celebrated with them. Maybe we come here this morning tired. We thank you for all those that helped serve in so many ways at the wedding there in Ras Al-Khaimah. Lord, give us energy now to hear your word. Maybe it was a challenge to get out of bed this morning, to smile, to sing. Maybe that's a strain for some of us. Would your word be a refreshing balm to our souls, a light unto our paths, and rest for weary hearts? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, God helps those who help themselves. Now, kids and tweens, I have a little quiz for you this morning as we get started. Where in the Bible do we find that phrase? 
God helps those who help themselves. Kids, tweens, any answers? Well, it's a, twic- it's a trick question, isn't it? I'm glad I didn't hear lots of answers. It's an oft-quoted phrase, but kids, tweens, and all of us, it's not a phrase that we find in the Bibles, is it? I don't know who made it up, but God surely did not. It summarizes, though, what some may say about salvation. If you do your part, well, God will do his. You try hard, God will do the rest. You do some, and God will carry you over the finish line. But this teaching is nowhere in the book of Romans and nowhere in the Bible. Now we're in our 16th sermon in this crown jewel of the New Testament, and we're going to look at the final five verses. So we read the whole verses 21 through 31. Leah read that for us. This is our fourth week in in this crown jewel of the crown jewel. This is the centerpiece of Paul's letter to the Romans. In these verses, in a sense, it's a bit of a postscript to verses 21 through 26, which we took three weeks to expound, and we looked at three theological ideas there of justification, redemption, and propitiation. This also, though a postscript to those verses, serves as a bridge to Romans chapter 4, where we see the great illustration and example of faith in Abraham. Remember the three theological ideas. Justification, that means to be declared righteous. It means when God the Father sees believers, he doesn't see our sin, but he actually sees Jesus, that we have been declared righteous. Then we saw redemption. Redemption means to be bought. For a price, Christ's blood on the cross was the payment for our sins. The payment that frees us from the bondage of sin and death. And then we saw propitiation a couple weeks ago. The satisfaction of God's wrath. Our sin deserved death, but Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself. So we've seen these three rich theological truths, justification, redemption, and propitiation. These doctrines are a fuel for our worship. They are ways of describing the work of Jesus Christ and how we are saved by grace through faith. These aren't dry doctrines, but wellsprings of joy that make our hearts glad. Today we'll see three implications of God's plan for salvation. Three natural conclusions from the doctrines we studied over the last three sermons in Romans. We'll see, number one, humility, two, humanity, and three, holiness. Justification, redemption, propitiation, humble us. They exclude any boasting. It brings humility. Secondly, it unites us as believers because the gospel is for all humanity. And then third, these doctrines, they don't conflict with the law. But the goal of the law is to point us to Christ and to drive us to holiness. Humility, humanity, and holiness. That's where we're headed this morning if you're taking notes. So number one, humility, verses 27 and 
28. You can look there in the bulletins on the screen. So if you have your Bible, you can turn uh, along with me to Romans. You'll find it towards the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, the life of Jesus. And then you see Acts, and then you will find Paul's letter to the Romans. So look down at chapter 3. Let me just read the first two verses under this point, humility, verses 27 and 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So we'll stop there for a few minutes. Our salvation by grace through faith excludes boasting. This is what Paul is saying here. Now, if our salvation came from our good works or deeds, then we could boast. But this isn't possible because none of us can save ourselves. We've already read this just a few verses earlier in chapter 3 of Romans, that none of us are righteous, not even one. Our boasting is excluded, not by our works, but by the law of faith. We're saved apart from our works. We can't contribute anything. Now, one of the pastors visiting Turkey, uh, his name is Philip, and Philip is soon to plant a church in the city center of Paris, and he pointed out what we would all soon find out, that the hotel we were staying at wasn't actually an all-inclusive hotel. We were told all the meals were included, and so at our first dinner, pastors not only are eating the meals, but are ordering coffee and, and tea and other drinks, only to be told that they had to pay for the beverages. So the food, the meals were included in the price, but not the drinks. Now that seemed a bit odd. Well, Philip was pointing out, this isn't so with Jesus. See, with Jesus, there's nothing else to pay. Jesus is truly an all-inclusive Savior. We don't contribute even a little bit to our salvation. The grace of God slams shut the door of any boasting. Now, the scriptures are full of examples of this. You can think back to the Gospels of the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The tax collectors, they were, they were those that worked in conjunction with Rome to collect taxes from their fellow Jews. They would often steal a little bit of money off the top for themselves. Either way, tax collectors were considered traitors by their fellow Jews. <clears throat> but in one episode here, we have a tax collector, this traitor, and there was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was one who prided themselves in following the law. And so you have this tax collector, this traitor, this sinner, and you have this Pharisee, one who boasted in their feelings of greatness, and the Pharisee says something to the effect of, Lord, thank you that I'm not like these other men. Thank you that I'm not like these sinners, that I'm not like that tax collector over there, those sinners, those thieves, those adulterers. God, you know me. I fast twice a week. I give my tithes and my offerings. I say all my prayers. I follow you. Now, church, was the Pharisee lying about what he said he was doing? Well, 
I don't think so. I think he was actually doing these things. The Pharisees were actually doing these things. They were fasting. They were praying these, these long prayers, oftentimes out loud at the, the street corners. They gave tithes. They gave offerings. I think he really was doing these things. But here's the problem. He thinks by doing these things, he's earning something from God. He thinks by doing these things, he's pleasing God. He's earning something, but he's missed it. Whereas the tax collector sees the truth. The tax collector begs God for mercy, knows his sin, begs for grace. See, no matter how good you think you are, it's not good enough. The point isn't if you're better than someone else. The Pharisee looked at the tax collector and argued that his life looked better But there's a problem with that because the Christian life is not a competition. Entrance into heaven doesn't come if you're better than other churchgoers. As if if the top ten make it in, the rest aren't blessed. That's not what the scriptures teach. I once heard an illustration. Imagine with me two men running in a jungle with a tiger chasing them. One of them comments to the other, Are you afraid that you won't be able to outrun the tiger? And the man responds, No, I know I can't outrun the tiger. I'm not afraid of that. I just have to outrun you. Of course, he's intimating there that he'll be able to get away as the tiger eats the other man for lunch. This is not what the Christian faith is like. We're not trying to outrun one another. It's not that kind of race. Christianity is not a competition. It's a relationship with God, and we're all trying to help each other get to heaven. We're all trying to help each other on the road to heaven. True Christian community cares for one another and helps each other on the way to eternity. Friend, none of us are good enough to get to heaven. Our standard isn't the person in the row in front of us. Our standard is not the person sitting beside us to our right or to our left. Our standard is God. Our standard is what we sang in the second song today, holy. Our Lord is holy. Our Lord is perfect. Our Lord is sinless. Our Lord is just and perfectly loving. Our standard is God, and God is perfectly holy in every way. And so, friends, our actions can't save us. Our feelings can't save us. We may feel very close to God. We might have some type of emotional experience. But that's not enough. Our knowledge can't save us. We may know a lot about God. We may be studying at the Gulf Theological Seminary. Maybe we took an equipping class earlier this morning or will later on this afternoon. Maybe we've read many solid books. Maybe we know many Bible facts. Now these are good things, but they don't save us. Knowledge is a part of faith, but knowledge itself is not faith. Knowledge itself doesn't save. Our actions can't save us. Our feelings can't save us. Our knowledge can't save us alone. And so let's follow Paul's teaching in another letter in Galatians, in chapter 6, verse 4 of that letter. He tells us that we can boast. The Apostle Paul tells us 
that, that we can boast, but it's a certain type of boasting. He tells us to be done with with our personal boasting in the church of Christ, except, and here's the one exception, let's be done with boasting in the church except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, except for boasting in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Redeemer Church, let that be our boast. Let us heed Galatians chapter 6, and may our boast be the cross of Christ. This is what the author of our letter boasted in. Well, how do we know this? Well, if anyone could have boasted in himself, it was the apostle Paul. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says, I got it. If anyone's going to be saved based on what he or she has done, it's me. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. He means he was keeping the law. He was doing what he was supposed to do as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And he, here's what he says after that. He names the CV there. He says the CV and he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count not just a few things, not just some things, not just some actions, not just some good works, not just some parts of the law. Indeed, I count everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, trash, garbage in order that I may gain Christ. That's quite a list of accomplishments there. But the Apostle Paul, the same author of the letter to the Romans, writes there in his letter to the Philippians in Philippi, he says, all those things that I had done, all those things that I had trusted in to save me, all those things that I had done to try to gain entrance into heaven, to try to earn righteousness, all of those things, I count them all, everything, as rubbish. He says he gives them all up. Friends, the reason he gives them all up is because boasting and believing are contradictory to one another. Can't boast in yourself and believe in Christ. You can't do both. You can boast in yourself. Or you can boast in Christ. You can boast in yourself or you can believe in Christ. When you become a follower of, of Christ, a boast transfer occurs from yourself to Christ. Redeemer Church, may Christ be our boast. Well, a proper understanding of Romans 3 and our justification, our redemption, our propitiation means we are a humble people. We know that God has saved us. And so we boast not in our works, but in Christ. Well, this passage also shows us that this is good news for all humanity. That's the second point this morning. Number two, humanity. Look at verses 29 and 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. 
God provides one way of salvation for everyone, no matter your background or what you've done or not done. If we're justified through works of the law, then we'd have to become Jews. Circumcised, this refers to the Jews. The uncircumcised, this refers to the Gentiles, to everyone else. But here Paul says God is not only the God of the Jews, but also the God of the Gentiles. God is a God of both since God is one. You're not saved by the law and there are not two separate gods. There's one God, verse 30, and the same God will justify or declare righteous both those who are circumcised by faith, the Jews, or those who are uncircumcised through faith, the Gentiles. The good news of salvation is that it's free for us, but it's also available for all humanity. Our salvation unites believers and it it excludes discrimination. Paul uses the Shema. This refers to the the best known verse perhaps in all of Judaism. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Paul is connecting the truth there from Deuteronomy to the book of Zechariah in chapter 14. Where the prophet says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. There is one God, and at the end, on that day, he will save both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And both will be saved by faith. Heaven will be filled with all kinds of people from all parts of humanity. Maybe you've heard it said that when we get to heaven, we'll be surprised at who we see there. Well, I've also heard it said that when we get to heaven, some people will be surprised to see us there. It's because we don't get to heaven based on our own merit. And we don't get there based on our backgrounds or where we're from. I mean, think about just the disciples for a moment. Jesus' chosen group, chosen followers, chosen team to be the first leaders in the church. The first thing you notice when you look at the list of Jesus's disciples is that there's not much to notice, at least not in terms of achievements. If we were going to choose a group of men to change the world, this certainly wouldn't be our choice. Peter, nicknamed the rock, we see that he's a coward at the crucifixion of Jesus. James and John, the sons of thunder, apparently are a couple of hotheads. In Luke 9, when the Samaritans rejected Jesus, they asked Jesus if they could call down fire and blow the Samaritans up. Thaddeus, his name means mama's boy. Thomas doubts Jesus after the resurrection. Matthew, he's one of those hated tax collectors. And he puts Matthew on a team with Peter and Andrew and James and John, these these fishermen. It's likely that Matthew would have actually collected taxes from these fishermen, a man who helped Rome oppress Jews on a team with these Jews themselves. I mean, do you see how ridiculous this is? These guys hated each other. Jesus also puts Simon the Zealot on the team. While Matthew is partnering with the Roman government, here's a man trying to overthrow the Roman government. I mean, some of the men are so obscure, so ordinary, we don't know anything about them. 
This might be the strangest team in human history, men who have nothing in common except that they responded to Christ's summons. Men perhaps with nothing in common except that they said yes when Jesus said, follow me. They were all called by him. Now remember, this is a picture of the church. God brings people together from all different backgrounds, languages, skin colors, jobs, experiences, temperaments. We're all different. The disciples were Jewish, but then slowly others were added to the faith. In the book of Acts, Cornelius, a Roman centurion. Later, we see an Ethiopian eunuch believes. Our church shows the world that God doesn't only care for the poor or the rich. He came to save both. He came for the Africans and Europeans, Islanders, Chinese, Filipinos, Americans, and Latinos. Aren't you glad God also takes the doubters, the hotheads, the sinners, and calls us to himself? Because such were some of us. There's one God, Paul says, not multiple gods, not multiple ways to get to God. There's one God, one way to be saved, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what's your sin? Is it pride? Is it anger, lust? Well, Jesus says, whomever comes to me, I will never cast out. What's your job, your career, a teacher, a doctor, a nanny, a businesswoman, a homeschooling mom or dad, or a hotelier, a cabin crew, a pilot. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What is your heart condition? Are you a seeker, fighter, a questioner, a doubter? Do you come here today depressed or anxious? Look to Jesus, look to Jesus, and he will satisfy your heart. What's your passport country? Is your passport green or red or blue? Are you Asian, African, Australian, or American? Remember, there's one God over all. He's the God of the rich and the poor, the old and the young, the Baptists and the Presbyterians, the white collar and the blue collar. Now, what does this mean about unity together as a church? Well, here's just one application for us. Rather than racism, what our church should be known for is gracism. I read that idea this last week. A man I never heard of coined that term. I didn't make it up. He said that gracism means extending favor to others irrespective of their color, culture, or class. Gracism. I love this. Gracism means we embrace our cultural diversity as a church. Gracism means we seek to be ministers of reconciliation across cultures that are normally hostile toward one another. Gracism means there are no caste systems in the church. Gracism means we forgive those who've hurt us. We can live with grace now because we have the hope of heaven where everything will be made right. Gracism means we preach grace. Gracism means we give grace to others. Gracism means you, nobody will ever be asked to sit in the back 
of this meeting hall. There are no reserved seats up front for VIPs in this church because there are no VIPs in the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? All of us saved by Jesus are family, are one in Christ Jesus, all made new creations, and all will be gathered together for all eternity with our Savior. Now, after reading and studying verses 27 through 30 in these first two points, what would you expect Paul to say next about the law? That's an interesting question. So take a look at the text. If you have your Bible, you can look there uh, or back in your bulletins. So just take a look again. I want you to look at the text for yourselves and look at verses 27 through 30 again. Don't look at verse 31. I know we read it earlier, but don't look at it. Don't cheat. Don't look ahead. Just look at verses 27 through 30. And based on those verses, what would you expect Paul to write next about the law? Just take a moment now to read it and think on it. Well, I wonder what you've come up with. Because when I read those verses, and then I read the very first clause in verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? I'm expecting Paul, we're expecting Paul, just based on those few verses, to say down with the law, away with the law. The law is obsolete. The law failed. It's all faith. Following the law doesn't save. Let's get rid of it. But that's not what Paul says. There's an unexpected ending. It's like that movie with a surprise twist at the end. It's what we least expect here, and that's point number three, holiness. Number three, holiness. We've seen humility, we've seen humanity, and now we see holiness. Look at verse 31. And here's the question. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Now, the final sentence of this glorious chapter, by no means, Paul says, no way, may it never be. On the contrary, meaning in opposition, well, we do the opposite, we uphold the law. Now, we expect Paul to say, we overthrow the law because of faith. That's not what Paul says. Now think about it. Paul doesn't say get rid of the law anywhere in these verses. He says stop boasting in the law. Stop trusting in the law. Stop relying on the law as a means of salvation. Boasting is excluded, but not the law. We don't get to live however we want. This new era in Christ doesn't mean that we can live or indulge in sin. Salvation by grace through faith seeks to uphold the law. Now, the law was the Jews' most treasured possession. There are a couple of different things the law could refer to here. It could refer to the Torah, what we refer to as the Pentateuch, the first five Books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Sometimes the word was derived 
from the word to instruct, meaning the whole Old Testament. If this is the case, Paul is likely saying that justification by faith upholds the law. It's not a contradiction to it and shows that even in the Old Testament, people were saved by faith. Of course, we know this is true. If this is what Paul is saying, he's setting up chapter 4 quite nicely for us. This serves as an introduction and a transition to chapter 4 where Paul says that Abraham, the great father in Genesis, was saved by faith. And we're going to see that as an illustration throughout chapter 4. We'll see that beginning next Sunday. Another possibility is that Paul means the law in a more narrow sense, referring to the Mosaic law, referring specifically to the Ten Commandments and other specific laws in the Pentateuch. If this is what Paul means, he's saying, let's not overthrow the law, but let's put it in its proper place. The law is good, not to save, but it exposes our sins. Its function is to show us our sins so that we might come to God in faith. Either way, the point Paul is making is we don't overthrow the law. We uphold the heart of it. We don't sweep it under the rug. On the one hand, Christ does what we could not do by his perfect life and by his death. He fulfilled the law for us. We've been set free from the penalty of sin and death. And yet at the same time, our response to salvation is that we want to follow the law. That our goal is to please the Lord. So here's the great paradox. It's our freedom from the law and its judgment that actually causes us to want to follow God's law. We want to be holy people. We don't do it in order to be saved, but we do it out of an overflow of the salvation that we've been given. We have one life, Redeemer Church. We have one life. How are we going to live our one life? Are we going to live in holiness? Are we going to follow God's ways? Are we going to listen to Him and walk with Him in a way pleasing to the Lord? Or are we going to indulge in sin? Now, this is important because it's not like a cat who has nine lives or so they say. We have one life. Now, at the same conference in Turkey, one of the other speakers was Pastor Tony Merida. Tony preached here from this pulpit back in December. And he was teaching in his, in his first sermon there in Colossians in Turkey. He shared an illustration about an old video game called Contra. I remember this game back in the 80s. And in the game, Pastor Tony pointed out that you get one life. That you have one life and then if you die in the game, you're done. Game over. But there was a secret code that you could find. And if you had the secret code, you could type in the code and the game would give you 30 lives. That's a lot of lives. Now, those of you who love video games will understand this. Actually, all of us will understand this illustration. With 30 lives, you play the game a different kind of way. Maybe you do some crazy things. Maybe you take some risks. Maybe you're not worried about losing a life for two or ten because you have more lives. But with one life, with one life, every move you make has to be intentional. With one life, you only get one chance and it's over. Redeemer Church, we have one life. And that's it. You can choose to sin or you could choose 
holiness, one life. Don't waste it. Don't wait for tomorrow to not waste it. Strive for holiness today. Pray today. Read God's Word today. Confess your sin today. Is there a particular sin that you need to put to death today? Don't be fooled. Sin looks good at first glance. It's a kind of bait. It looks like a piece of chocolate. But in reality, it's a piece of dog food covered in a shallow shell of sweetness. Once you take a bite, the disgust follows. When you sin, any perceived joy almost instantly evaporates. It injures your soul. Sin leaves you emptier than you were when you started. It's the bait. It's like the fisherman trying to catch a fish. It looks good. But when you bite into it, you realize that you've been trapped. You realize that it was a trick. You realize that you are emptier than you were before. You realize that you have walked the path towards death. Friend, get help today. Get your sin out into the open today. Before you leave this room, ask for help. Visit a Connections team member on your way out. Come talk to me. Come talk to anybody who is on this platform. Come talk to your small group, your community group leader. Maybe just the person next to you or the friend who invited you. Cast away any bitterness you have towards someone. Admit your anger. Fight not with each other, but fight for patience and fight for perseverance. Forgive someone today. Ask for forgiveness today. Tell Jesus that he's enough for you in all things. Content yourself with what God's given you. Kids, tweens, teens, uni students, all of us. Be content with what God has given you. Be thankful to God for all things. Remind yourself of the love of Jesus and never lose the wonder of Christ's love which first warmed your heart. And friend, if you don't yet know Jesus Christ, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, turn to Him today. He will fill your heart. He will fill what's been lacking in your heart. Because you and me, all of us have sinned. We've fallen short of God's glory. We deserve death and judgment. But Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the God-man came to earth, died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, and rose from the dead. Oh, friend, you have one life. You have one life. You have one life. Turn to Jesus. Give your one life to Him. And Redeemer Church, would we be a church marked by humility? Would we be a church that would have a love for all of humanity? And would we be a church that would strive for holiness? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you're not a God who helps those who help themselves. If that were true, we'd all be dead. Thank you that you don't tell us just to try harder, but that Jesus came to us, lived the life we could not live, and instead of condemning us, he died on the cross to save us. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you. All glory be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.